Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Monday, March 13th. I'm Arun Vandegopal from the WNYC Newsroom, filling in for Brian Lehrer today. Yesterday, federal regulators announced that they would ensure that all of the depositors with money in Silicon Valley Bank would be made whole, not just the ones below the guaranteed amount with no cost to the taxpayer. And they made other moves, including closing a second bank in New York, all to keep depositors in other banks from getting nervous and withdrawing their funds. President Biden spoke just an hour ago about the arrangement that was worked out with the Treasury Department, the FDIC, and the Federal Reserve. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks, can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. An attempt at a little reassurance from President Biden. The president also presented his budget plan last week. And with the Republican-controlled House unlikely to act on it, we ask what it says about politics in the year 2024. Former President Trump is on the campaign trail in Iowa today as the Manhattan DA seems to be moving toward an indictment. His vice president, Mike Pence, made some news himself this weekend, saying history will hold Donald Trump accountable for January 6th. And New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy was on the road in Ukraine last week and in D.C. over the weekend. To add some context to all of this, I'm joined by Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time and the author of Pelosi, a biography of the former Speaker of the House. Welcome back to WNYC, Molly Ball. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. All right, Molly, let's start with the banking situation, which is reverberating not just nationally, but internationally. I know you're not a finance reporter, but perhaps you can tell us about the politics of all this um, and whether President Biden and his administration perceived uh, are perceived as making good on the claim that the banking system is safe. What do you think? Well, we don't know yet, right? We're obviously uh, waiting to see how all of this plays out. It is a real test for the Biden administration to see if they can handle this in a way that is uh, reassuring to to the markets, to, uh, to 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 Main Street as well as Wall Street, right? Uh, and so, and what we're seeing today, uh, I don't think we know yet whether. Uh, this contagion could spread further, whether more banks could be affected. We have already seen uh, banks other than SVB, the bank that failed, uh, showing signs uh, of, of similar runs, other mid-sized banks. So the question is, is that going to spread further throughout the market, throughout the, the banking sector? Uh, and if it does, does the is the administration, uh, does it have the the tools and, and is it able to act fast enough to contain it? Uh, it's possible that this is this is a blip, that the action that's been taken is sufficient and everybody goes on with their lives and we don't remember this in a few months, it's also possible that it spirals into a 2008 type situation. I think that's obviously 
everybody's worst fear. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, then there could be very severe consequences uh, for for an economy that that previously had been, if anything, running running too hot. So, uh, so it, it's going to be uh, we're we're going to have to wait to see how it plays out uh, to see whether the administration's action so far has been sufficient and whether the president is correct when he says that taxpayers won't be on the hook. We've heard some skepticism, uh, particularly on the left, for that claim. Uh, let's talk about the the reaction from the right. How are re- Republicans responding to this so far? Uh, most Republicans have been uh, somewhat supportive uh, from what I have seen. Uh, say uh, it's more of the criticism seems to be coming. I, I think, you know, the the 2008 era bailouts were unpopular on both the left and the right uh, and, and uh, arguably led to to the formation of the Tea Party. Uh, so far, we are seeing uh, some sort of cautious support for what's happened uh, from the sort of more more mainstream quarters of the Republican Party. Uh but again, I think it's going to depend on on whether or not the action taken so far turns out to be successful. Uh, it's obviously a little early here in New York in terms of the markets and how they're going to respond throughout the day. Uh, in Europe, we've seen markets uh, dip uh, since they're ahead of us. We've seen companies as far away as India um, being uh, damaged by what's happened uh, to the bank, to SVB. Um, I guess it's going to take a few days for this to really, I guess, percolate down to Main Street if it does, right? Uh, what What do you think in terms of 2008 uh, so far is different about this? I, I mean, do we see a, a different reaction? Were you covering the situation back then? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot that's different about the context. Uh, the um, you know, SVB was uh, concentrated in uh, the the tech sector, hence the name. And so a lot of what we have been seeing in tech uh, has a bearing on what's happening here. Other banks that have been affected uh, have had a lot of holdings in crypto, another sector that's taken a big hit recently, uh, whereas the 2008 situation had much more to do uh, with the housing markets and the housing bubble. Uh, we're also, we've also seen that uh, a lot of this appears to have been uh, brought on in part uh, by the Fed's rate hikes and the action taken to counter inflation. That wasn't something that was happening in 2008, and that relates much more to this overheated economy that we have uh, with, uh, you know, not enough people to fill all the jobs available as opposed to the other way around. So there's a lot that's different, uh, but anytime you have uh, runs on banks, obviously it makes people really nervous. And so the administration today uh, trying to reassure uh, companies that that had their their holdings in SVB that they can still pay their employees. To your point about Main Street, that people who are sort of innocent victims of this, uh, who uh, whose companies have to be able to make payroll, that that they'll still uh, be able to 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 have that stability. So it'll just uh, again depend on whether the the contagion spreads further. Uh, Molly, let's go to another area of discussion right now, which would be the president's budget proposal. Uh, when he presented it, he quoted a line of his dad's where he said, show me your budget. I will tell you what you value. Uh, President Biden's plan totals $6.88 trillion, includes tax increases on the wealthy and corporations, um, increases in the social safety net, Smaller increases in defense spending while trimming the deficit by what he proposes, $3 trillion. What exactly does it say about his values? Well, there was nothing 
at all surprising in this budget blueprint. I think it was exactly what someone uh, would have predicted from uh, this president and this administration. A lot of the uh, social safety net uh, proposals that you mentioned were previously contained in the failed Build Back Better legislation uh, that later passed in reduced form, but things like the expansion of the child tax credit were not included. Uh, so some of that uh, went into this uh, spending proposal. It was it was interesting and a little bit surprising how uh, the White House chose to present it uh, before the release of the budget. There was a lot of emphasis on the deficit reduction piece. Now, it reduces the deficit by spending more money and raising even more taxes. It doesn't reduce the deficit uh, by cutting spending, which is uh, more what you know, the right would like to see and uh, and would propose. Uh, but it does reduce the deficit. And so I think you have, you know, as he prepares to campaign for reelection, the president trying to strike a sort of, on the one hand, a sort of old school democratic populist tone, sort of similar to the, the State of the Union. Uh, but on the other hand, a, a sort of centrist message to say we do care about debt and deficits. We are working to bring them down. Uh, and 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 having that be a major piece of the messaging. And fundamentally, this is a messaging proposal. It's not something that anybody expects to pass. As, as the president said, it is a statement of values. And that is what these budget proposals have traditionally been over the years as a way to communicate to the electorate what the president and his party stand for. And you see, a, you know, a party and a president that broadly stand for taxing the rich, bolstering the social safety net, spending more money on government programs, uh, in particular uh, education programs and healthcare programs. Uh, and then, despite the fact that we have supposedly just ended two wars, increasing the Pentagon budget as well uh, to deal with uh, the, the threat from China and the situation in Ukraine. Let's talk about the the reaction from Republicans. One Republican senator commented yesterday on Fox, the only way I know how to improve the president's budget is with the shredder. Not especially surprising, but Republicans don't have an alternative plan just yet, do they? They don't. And I think you can expect to hear Democrats in the White House uh, hammer them for that on a daily basis until they come up with something. You know, the, they, they really... The Democrats really believe that that the Republicans have sort of painted themselves into a corner, uh, both with the budget situation um, and and also with the the debt ceiling, which poses a similar sort of dilemma. Republicans have said that they want to see uh, big cuts in exchange for raising the debt limit. They've said they want to balance the budget. They've also said, uh, despite uh, Biden's accusation that caused that yelling match on the on the floor of the House during the State of the Union, they've said that they don't plan to propose cuts. To to Medicare and Social Security. That doesn't leave a lot on the table if you're not going to raise taxes. Uh, so Democrats are waiting for Republicans to come up with something uh, that might have some chance of, of uniting uh, the party, uniting the very slim Republican uh, majority in the House. And that's going to be very difficult for Republicans to do. So they obviously have a lot of uh, philosophical and ideological and practical uh, issues with uh, the Democrats' approach to this these things, uh, but it is going to be very hard for them to come up uh, with a counterproposal because of all of those uh, different factions and different sort of conditions that they've set. And very different scenario from, I suppose, the culture war issues, isn't it, where you have standard bearers rallying around things like... Um anti-wokeness and whatnot and, and trying to prevent the, the teaching of American history and some of these kind of red meat issues that, that um, uh, the base seems to lap up. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that wouldn't necessarily be relevant to a budget discussion. But you, we have also seen uh, that this president in particular really avoid those kind of hot button issues, really decline to engage in a lot of the extremely, uh, you know, polarizing and divisive uh issues being discussed, you know, on, on, on a daily basis uh, by by Republicans and on Fox News and so on, uh, rather than sort of uh, mount a, a, a loud sort of counter to that. Um, but but, you know, one very big uh, social issue that I think we're not going to see uh, either side stop discussing is abortion. And as the campaign heats up on both sides, we're going to see uh, a lot of discussion of the continuing fallout of the end of Roe v. Wade and uh, different Republican candidates campaigning uh, talk about uh, how how they would propose to to move forward on that issue. This is another issue where I think uh, Democrats believe they have an advantage on, whereas on some of the the cultural stuff, Republicans do think they have an advantage, but it's not in the sense of uh, balancing any budgets. More about uh, reminding voters about some of the ways that they believe uh, the the Democratic Party is is out of step with sort of mainstream American culture. Let's hear something from the White House today and how they're uh, responding to all that's going on. On Friday, the House Freedom Caucus. Republicans, that is, issued its demands for any debt ceiling agreement with the White House, saying they they would, for the first time, vote to extend the debt ceiling, but only if programs already agreed to when the Democrats control the House, like student loan relief, IRS funding, climate change programs, were rolled back. Here's how Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young responded on CNN yesterday. But let's not hold the debt ceiling hostage uh, to really uh, draconian cuts, all to help the wealthiest in this country. All right, Molly Ball of Time Magazine. Let's talk about that. Uh, so the White House is not receptive to what the House Freedom Caucus has proposed, but has Speaker Kevin McCarthy responded to their demands? Uh, not that I've seen. He seems to just sort of have let them... Uh, put this out there. And, and I think everybody knows that this is, you know, the Freedom Caucus represents the sort of far right wing of uh, the Republican uh, House majority and uh, that anything that they would propose would not uh, likely have the support even of the entire Republican caucus, uh, much less any bipartisan support. Uh, but it does illustrate what a jam McCarthy is in because the Freedom Caucus, which has, you know, 35, 40 members, uh, controls a sizable chunk of votes that he's going to need to pass anything. He's only got a five seat majority. And we saw during the speaker fight how hard it is to maneuver uh, when you can't lose more than a few votes. So uh, he, this is why, you know, the White House uh, has taken the stance that has saying they're not negotiating at all. Uh, they're waiting for Republicans to come up with some proposal, which they can then say that they are not going to engage with. Uh, but it's it is a real jam for McCarthy to try to come up with something that he can sell to his entire caucus, much less something that could actually uh, get some some buy in uh, some some negotiation with the White House. TJ in Manhattan. TJ, what's your question for Molly Ball? Good morning, uh, Ms. Ball. Uh, the question I have for you is, shall we see a repeat scenario of what happened in 1995 when the Republicans basically did the same thing? 
they wanted to eliminate several programs for them to uh, agree to raise the debt ceiling. Then nothing happened and uh, everybody went against them and they had to come back and uh, raise the debt ceiling without obtaining a single concession. Thank you, TJ, from Manhattan. Molly, uh, a bit of a throwback to the mid-90s and the Clinton era. Uh, any thoughts about whether there are sort of um, modern-day, I guess, uh, resonances or, or uh, similarities to what happened in the 90s? Uh, well, sort of. I mean, I'm not super familiar with the details of what went down in 95. Mm-hmm. There, was obvi- there was also, uh, there were a couple, actually, of government shutdowns in that era uh, because of the impasse in uh, budget negotiations between the Clinton administration and uh, then-Speaker Newt Gingrich. So, uh, but, but the situation uh, that the caller described is, of course, what the White House would like to see happen, that Republicans can't come up with anything. Uh, and therefore, they're forced to just sort of uh, capitulate. Uh, we'll see if that happens. They have they have insisted that, that that they are not going to do that. And both the House and Senate Republicans have said that a, a so-called clean debt limit increase is a non-starter. Uh, and it's just going to depend on how the next few months play out, what, if any, proposal the Republicans can put on the table, uh, and whether it is uh, something that all parties can accept. Even though the White House has taken this hard line against negotiating, we have seen, uh, you know, centrist con- uh, conservative Democrats like uh, Senator Joe Manchin saying that they they do want there to be some kind of negotiation, some kind of deal uh, and and positioning himself to 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 help broker that, uh, so there is a possibility of something happening there, but it it has to start and it hasn't really started yet. In a similar vein, I, I'm curious about the Biden budget, um, which is seen by many as a blueprint for 2024 for his own re-election campaign, assuming he does run again, as expected. Um, how much of this do you see as him trying to get Republicans on the record against some of its more popular elements, you know, for himself and for other Democrats to benefit from. Yeah, that is a huge part of of the politics of this, that uh, the the Democrats really believe that they benefit from this contrast, that even if Republicans are going to take this document and and say, you know, this is too much spending, too much taxes, this, uh, you know, would be bad for the economy. uh, They're saying, well, what, you know, what are you for? And particularly, as we saw uh, in the State of the Union, as we've seen consistently uh, from President Biden, uh, pushing them to say what they are proposing for Medicare and Social Security. These are hugely popular programs that every American eventually uh, almost uh, expects to be able to benefit from. Uh, so any kind of modification to those uh, is has always been a sort of political third rail. And, and that was why when the president uh, brought this up as an attack on Republicans during the State of the Union. They started yelling at him and heckling him and saying, that's not true. That's not what we're for. And, you know, he and he said, I'm not saying you're all for that, I'm, but it is certainly something yeah. some people have proposed. And indeed, it is something some pre- Republicans have proposed. And we're seeing now out on the campaign trail, candidates uh, like uh, like Nikki Haley uh, and Mike Pence saying, they're, if we want to keep these programs solvent, we do have to change the structure of them, potentially make the benefits less generous, whether that's by means testing or by raising the retirement age, 
Um, the President Obama was interested in some sort of grand bargain uh, akin to uh, the sort of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill days back in the 80s, where uh, the, the Democrats and Republicans would try to agree on some combination of, of tax increases and benefit cuts. That never came together because of the, the red lines on both sides. Uh, but this administration has not shown any interest in anything of the sort. I think uh, Joe Biden is a much more sort of traditional Democrat in that sense. Uh, and, uh, and, and just knowing how popular these programs are sees that uh, as, as a major pl- plank in his reelection platform. I'm curious, how much of a lesson is there to be learned from the politics around uh, Rick Scott, um, U.S. Senator Rick Scott, and his proposed, and then I think, I guess, with withdrawn proposals to uh, uh, to have to issue cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which the Democrats really kind of went to town on um, gleefully. Um, how much uh, do you think that portends what's going to happen in the presidential campaign? Well, what's interesting to me is that this isn't only going to be a fight between Democrats and Republicans in the presidential campaign. It's going to be an issue in the Republican primary. We've seen a candidate, former President Donald Trump, attacking some of his Republican rivals for their proposals to cut Social Security and Medicare along very similar lines uh, to how they're being attacked by the president and the Democrats. And uh, I think that this was a big part of Trump's appeal when he first ran in 2016. Uh, virtually alone among the Republican candidates, he positioned himself as a strong supporter of these programs. Uh, and, you know, primary voters across the board, particularly Republican primary voters, uh, tend to skew older, tend to be disproportionately beneficiaries of these programs. And that was uh, a message that that won then candidate Trump uh, a lot of support. And now we're seeing him attack his fellow Republicans. So, you know, Rick Scott and his uh, proposal to sunset all federal programs, which originally uh, would have included Medicare and Social Security, he's now clarified or modified to say they're not in there. I think if it wasn't him, it would have been something else because there have been many Republicans and even some Democrats uh, that have uh, proposed versions of uh, so-called entitlement reform over the years. Uh, so he just happened to be the sort of nearest pinata when the president needed to take a whack at someone. But as we're seeing now out on the trail, uh, there there is no lack of politicians who have entertained these kind of proposals. And uh, and it's going to be, I think, a big issue uh, in the 2024 campaign. And we'll leave it there for today. My guest has been Molly Ball, national political correspondent for Time and the author of Pelosi. Molly, thank you. Thanks so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.